Welcome to Listening Through Time. This is Barbara Hawes, the archivist and historian of the New York Philharmonic. In this podcast series, we are going inside the orchestra, comparing how Philharmonic musicians over time played certain licks or passages in a variety of works. Are they the same or different, and why? Our guides in this journey are the Philharmonic players themselves, both current and former members. For the Philharmonic's 175th anniversary season, Sony Classical released a 65-CD box set of the orchestra's recordings dating from 1917 through 1996, and this got us thinking about new ways of listening and assessing the Philharmonic's history. Today, we are joined by the incomparable Stanley Drucker, who joined the New York Philharmonic in 1948. Stanley retired 60 years later in 2009 after serving as principal clarinet since 1960. Stanley, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you for that, those lovely words, Barbara, <laughs> and I'm happy to be here with you today. It's great. So, so why don't we just dive right in and, and listen to uh, maybe, at least in my memory, an entrance that no one quite plays like you do and to me set the definition of how it should be played. That, of course, was the entrance to Rhapsody in Blue, conducted by Zubin Mehta, that you recorded for Woody Allen's movie, Manhattan. That's right. Did you always play it that way? Well, you know, uh, I heard some old recordings where they, uh, they were rough and ready and they were more jazzy, but uh, this, I guess I absorbed some of those things and... Uh, try to make them my style and and very lucky because uh, it's such a great thing to play and uh, and opening up a movie like Manhattan was another <laughs> thrill for me. Well and Woody Allen was sitting right there during the recording session for it too I believe. Yes he, he and Diane Keaton were, were in the hall there were very few people in the hall just some of his team and uh, I remember when when we did it uh, with Zubin uh, he gave a thumbs gave me a thumbs up. Well, you know that we we do have another uh, a recording of this. It's not the Philharmonic, but it's um, from 1924. So shortly after its premiere, not too long, and it's you know the Paul Whiteman band. Yes, with Ross Gorman. I, I read about him. You know, he was one of the early players. And uh, there's, of course, all kinds of uh, legends develop about it. Uh, if you looked at the uh, actual notation of the music, it looks like it's it's a scale. And uh, perhaps, and the story was that uh, uh, some of those uh, uh, players at that time had problem playing a whole scale, so they smeared the notes all the way up to the top. 
it's it's it could be true or it could be just legend. Well, should we listen to Ross Gorman then? Oh, play with this? pleasure. Be fine. Let's see what uh, what this sounds like. It's a well, little different there. Well, I'd say that's very unique. It was the beginnings of this piece, and uh, and he he this man uh, was a pioneer. Right. Well, he has his laughing quality in it, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, it was. Uh, I, perhaps somebody pe- might say it was icky. Icky. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not nearly as musical. Well, it's it's oh. not classical style. Right. You know, it's right. it's. Uh, it's, it could be improvised. In a, uh, uh, you know, the melody itself uh, is slightly different uh, because, it, you know, after you play that, that long sound on it, then it's... It's not... Where the first note has to have a little more length. Right. Because actually the, ri- the, the marked rhythm begins with the second measure. Mm. Everybody has something to say. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's really true from just all of my experience around for this many years at the Philharmonic. Uh, but, you know, there's still this insistence that it's all about what's on the paper, right? What's printed there. Yes, uh, there's very little leeway with a lot of pieces, but uh, certainly with the, with this Gershwin piece, uh, there is a tremendous individual approach where one uh, uh, can stretch things or move them ahead or or uh, bend a note here or there. Uh, Gershwin was, it was amazing. This is an amazing composition. Uh, but, uh, but the man was, uh, was an incredible composer. Were there any conductors that ever said, Stanley, I'd like you to do that a little faster. Stanley, you know, could you do this differently? Well, uh, yes, I would say uh, uh, tempo-wise, they might say uh, uh, make the glissando longer or make it shorter, but uh, it it all has to be a a total effect. It's not so you don't fragment something, you know. If you concentrate too much on that first measure that has a fermata over it with a, tr- with a trill and, and this scale that people slide on uh, at, at, at the expense of what comes in the second measure where it's in time. You, you lose something. Mm-hmm. It has to be a big picture. It can't be fragmented. Was there ever a conductor that asked you to do it in a certain way that you really disagreed with? In this solo, I would say not. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they start conducting, actually, after they give a little nod, is in the second measure. So they hear the long glissando, and, and they know where to bring the baton down right. in time. Um, so when you started at the Philharmonic in 1948, you were the uh, 
You played E flat clarinet, right? right? I Third clarinet. Yes, the, the E flat clarinet, the piccolo clarinet, and uh, and uh, assistant uh, first, and, right. and third clarinet when when there was a part for third clarinet. And I think I remember uh, you once saying that you had been specifically advised to take the third clarinet role rather than second. Yes. Well, uh, you know, there was more opportunity to play solos, and uh, it was probably the, uh, by accident, the, the best decision I ever made. But because not only did I play solos on the piccolo clarinet, the E-flat clarinet, I also had to play a lot of principal clarinet music when the principal player didn't because you were all of 18 years old? 19. Nine, oh, sorry. I was, o- I was older. <laughs> An older guy. You were 19 years old than when you started with the New York Philharmonic. Mm. And, and you auditioned for, who'd you audition for? Bruno Walter. Ah, okay. He was the music advisor in, this, in the second year of a two-year reign and also a committee of principal players. And did you know any of the players yeah, I recognized. I recognized the... Uh, uh, Leonard Rose, the cellist, uh, John Woomer, the solo flute. Uh, but you didn't know any of the wind players when you auditioned. Well, the flutist, I, I oh, knew, knew who he flute, was. Right? I didn't know him, but I saw him, and and uh, there was also John Corleano, a senior, uh, was concertmaster. Were you surprised that you got the job at 19? or N- Nothing surprises you at 19. <laughs> That's <totally> true. <laughs> it's true. But, but I, I'll say, you know, I... Uh, being very young, uh, you don't agonize over too many things. Yeah. But, but I already played with two other orchestras at that point. I, I, when I left uh, to take this a post in, 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 with the Indianapolis Symphony, from left from Curtis, uh, I was 16. I did a little tour after that with, the, with Adolf Busch and his little symphony. And then I went to the Buffalo Philharmonic with William Steinberg who became important at the New York Philharmonic in later years, wonderful musician. And uh, I played principal in Buffalo prior to, to winning the Philharmonic audition. You were an old hand then, uh, by yeah, 19. Uh, oh. My fourth job. Yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> that's amazing. But that that's kind what of they did in those days. You took right. auditions constantly. Right. You know, right. one season might be longer a little bit, or you might make a little more money per week. You know, you always were trying to, to rise to something more it, it wasn't it wasn't year round in those days no. you know, uh, employment in an orchestra was seasonal I, I think you played about 38 weeks then maybe 36 36 well, 38 weeks what, if you count not the counting su- the summer not well counting. They, they, when i joined the season at the new york philharmonic was 28 weeks oh 28 the, oh you know in the 40s yeah okay 28 28 right. weeks and then there was lewison stadium mm-hmm. uh, which was it, at that point was 6 weeks mhm it was a different program every day, completely different. There were no repeats at the Lewiston Stadium. You work incredibly hard, a lot of hours. Um, I, uh, th- there's one story, I can't remember exactly which work it was that Bernstein was performing at the stadium. So you rehearsed it in the morning, played it that evening, and then Columbia Records wanted to record it. And so you went down to Carnegie Hall at midnight after the stadium, recorded the work at, in Carnegie so they'd have the good recording acoustics. So it means you probably got home maybe 4 or 5 in the morning, and you had to be back up at the stadium by 10 a.m. the next day for rehearsal. That was uh, usual sometimes. You know, a lot of recordings of that era were done very late at night in Carnegie Hall because uh, the noise from the subway was more infrequent. 
Oh, that's why you did it then, huh? You didn't have that rumble going through. That's right. Uh, I remember doing a, a number of recordings there. But also, the Columbia had other venues that they used. Uh, they used the grand one of the ballrooms at Manhattan Center. They had the converted church on 30th Street and 3rd Avenue. And in Brooklyn, the St. George. Oh, yes, uh, yes. We, in fact, in we, the recorded, we recorded uh, with Lenny uh, the Sacre de Printemps. Yeah, yeah. In that in that ballroom in Brooklyn, in that hotel. Well, well maybe. I mean, it's a, let's go listen to that one. That's a good. That's a good segue into that. So, um, uh, so we're going to listen to Bernstein's "Ride of Spring" from 1958 that you recorded in the St. George Hotel. Yeah, that's and we'll right. St- and we'll start here, uh, and we have Lenny's score in front of us. His actual score he used for that, wow. and and we'll start at the beginning. Okay. I thought that that was great playing on all parts. All there. parts, it was. Uh, it was really uh, live sounds, and uh, everything everything came to life on that page. Yeah, it really did. That's quite a recording. It is an amazing recording. It's uh, uh, I I think it's considered one of the best, you know, uh, mm. uh, of the work. Um, so we're going to listen to the 1940 performance of La Sacra conducted by Stravinsky himself. And the clarinets here are uh, principal Bellison, Bellison and Williams on the piccolo clarinet.
the English horn player was Michel Nazi. Yeah. He he was he was a fiery little guy. He was uh, he was born in Algiers. He half Italian, half French. Huh. And uh, he 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 played beautifully. This his sound was it's very distinctive. That English yeah. horn player. Yeah. yeah. He was wonderful. What do you think of those uh, the clarinets there? I thought they were fine. Yeah, but they no. sound very different. Why? Why are they sounding? Well, what do you think? Everybody has their own sound. The big difference was between the French, the players that played French-made instruments or German-made instruments. They were a different fingering system, mm. and the the uh, actual mouthpiece was a, was a different size. The reeds were a different size, uh, and they they gave more of a of a uh, dark darker sound. They weren't so so uh, you know resonant uh, with the, as the French style instrument. And and they what did you learn? How did you learned? Everybody in the most of us will play French style, mm-hmm. French instruments in French style. Hmm. Uh, the, uh, Germany and Austria were the play, places where where they played that other style. But it was the French style that came to the United States. Oh sure, yeah, right. well, you know, but uh, I, I'd say uh, almost. All players in the world play play a French system instrument. Um, I noticed, uh, in I, I sent you an email on this that, that Alexander Selmer, right, was he was he was Mahler's clarinet. That, I mean, that period, that too. yes, yeah. that's and right. He was, and and that's the only time Mahler's only here, nineteen oh nine to nineteen eleven, and so is Selmer. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I uh, the the Sel- they, they were brothers, the Selmer brothers. That they founded that company, I think, just around the turn of the century, mm-hmm. turn of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. And he came to the U.S. to play. Other French players came. You know, a lot of European players were in orchestras. Right. One of my predecessors was Gustav Langenus. Yes. <laughs> he, uh, he was a Belgian, and he was a wonderful musician who did come to the U.S. And uh, and he he was in the Philharmonic from 1920 to 1923. Mm. But so when we listen to this with uh, Bellison in 1940, it has a heavier feel yeah, to yeah. it. Yeah, it it was a, a what they call a darker darker sound. It's not so resonant. It's more mellow, wider. But it had, it, of course, it, everybody's sound is a concept. You have an idea of sound in your in your mind and. You, you strive for it. Certain instruments are more conducive to focus and core, and others more spread and mellow. Uh, what kind of a principal clarinet was Robert McGinnis? Well, he was an expert orchestral player. He was in the, in, in one of the early years. Uh, he entered the Curtis Institute, uh, and and he had a famous teacher, uh, Daniel Bonard, and uh, I would say he played in in some of the best orchestras. He played in Cleveland and in, and in uh, Philadelphia before playing right. in New York. Uh, he was classically trained. Were there was there anything in particular that he played that that you remember that you emulated that you well, said, well, I, that's that's the way to do it. Well, I, I would say that one thing I learned was how he fit in an ensemble situation, where he, he would be immersed in an ensemble, and. He knew how little to play or how much to play in a given situation. It, it was an experience that he had over, you know, learned. And I would say that I learned from a lot of people around me, uh, players that had uh, something valuable to say. Uh, 
people like like uh, Harold Gomberg and Leonard Rose, the cellist, or James Chambers on the horn, if you were focused and talented maybe, you, uh, you, you learned from one note sometimes. You mm. learned what they did and experienced something that stayed with you. So it's even from the horns and oh sure it, it doesn't matter what instrument it was right. you know you learned uh, to, uh, how one note might sound you know at the time of your retirement and uh, we we had all the music directors come in to videotape their memories and tributes for you and uh, Ricardo Muti heard we were doing that and he asked to be able to come in and videotape it and, and he said the most um extraordinary thing he said that he always looked forward to conducting because when he walked out and got on the podium there was Stanley Drucker sitting up and looking him straight in the eye as though it was his first concert and from my point of view we forget that a conductor needs to feel that kind of attention but it also leads me to ask you after 60 years and 10,200 concerts that you played how do you keep it fresh well i've always felt that uh, every time you go out to play a performance it's got to be like it's the first time the piece you're playing has to be like you've it's the first time you've ever played it and you, you were right about looking at the eyes you can't put yourself in an isolation box and just look down and be part of something, be part of an ensemble. It has to be, in a way, like chamber music, where a string quartet, they were looking at one another and passing a line along. But in the orchestra, of course, you, you, you're, you're a little more limited. You have to fit in the frame. But you, you want to feel what the totality of what somebody is doing up on that podium. Eye contact is essential. If, you, if a person only looks down at his music and fiddles away, uh, it's not the same thing. It has to be a, a collaboration and one where you draw off the other people. Well, it was obviously very meaningful to him. We're going to go back again. Let's listen, how about, to your first solo recording. Yes, that's correct. The, the Debussy, the Rhapsody from 1961 with Leonard Bernstein conducting.
So there you are, and and um, of course those concerts were at Carnegie Hall then. Yeah, that's before they built anything here yeah. at Lincoln Center, uh, and uh, the recording was done uh, at one of their venues, uh, at the Manhattan Center, the bo one of the ballrooms, on, uh, I think it was on the seventh floor mm -hmm. maybe, uh, that had a very good sound, and uh, that's where we recorded it. Was that the first time you soloed with the orchestra? That was well, uh, yes, uh, in the in the regular season, okay. I played. So I played a concerto uh, with the orchestra at Lewiston Stadium in the late 50s. Uh, uh, Thomas Sherman was the conductor, the uh, conductor of the Little Orchestral yeah. Society, and it was the Mozart concerto at Lewiston Stadium. But this was the first real uh, solo with, uh, in, the w you know, in the normal season at Carnegie Hall. Right. And, and Leonard Bernstein conducting. Right. Right, and it was still a very young Leonard Bernstein, a new Leonard Bernstein, yes, really. Yes, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. But, uh, but he had a special nickname for you, didn't he? He called me, yeah, Junior. Right, he'd always <laughs> call you Junior. Well, <laughs> but at least he didn't call me you, sir. <laughs> Stakowski used to call everyone you, sir. Oh, did he? <laughs> I played uh, my first solo with Leonard Bernstein, and I made a few solo recordings with the Philharmonic during my career, and, and I played... Uh, a recording and and after performances with Leonard Bernstein in his the last time he conducted the Philharmonic in October of uh, of uh, eighty nine and uh, it was the Copeland Concerto he he came for as a guest for two weeks all Tchaikovsky one week and all Copeland the other week well, you you sort of owned the Copeland Concerto well I played it a lot I yes. they, they, my wife said they're going to make me play it till I learn it. <laughs> Is that what you were doing? <laughs> Wait what? a minute. I even know how many times you played it. 64. You okay. played the Copeland. With different conductors. Yeah. Well, yes, yes, with different conductors. Right. But, I mean, uh, no, no one else. I mean, Benny Goodman played the f it the first time. He was the, it was written for him. He commissioned it, actually, you know. And then it took him forever to finally play it. And he finally did. And then, and then or maybe he recorded it. Anyway, you did the second performance, and then it was 64 times later. But Benny Goodman never went back to it, even well, though it was, he, he commissioned it. He commissioned a, a number of works. Uh, he commissioned Hindemith, who wrote a concerto, uh, Mio, uh, uh, the Bartok Contrasts for clarinet, violin, and piano, uh, and, uh, and perhaps other pieces, I'm not sure. But uh, he, he was very, uh, very focused on, on having good pieces written. Uh, the first recording of the Rhapsody by the New York Philharmonic had Benny Goodman as the clarinet solo in that. I brought you a program from the first performance in America yes. of the Debussy Rhapsody of 1912, uh, two performances, uh, and uh, it was the, the clarinetist at the time was uh, uh, Henri Leroy, right. Henri Leon Leroy. French clarinetist, and uh, that was with uh, with uh, uh, Stransky conducting. Right, right. But jo that Joseph Stransky. So the Philharmonic did the American premiere. Right. Uh, and then the first recording that the Philharmonic makes is with uh, is with Benny Goodman. 1940, I think. And 1940. And so why don't why don't we listen sure, to the beginning of that one? Sure. Why not? That's okay. Good.
Interesting. Very different sound. Yeah. Very different yeah. approach. It's, it's, huh? it's a different sound also. Perhaps uh, uh, the recordings were The recordings were a little very bit, different, uh, too. Frequencies were... Yeah. The, yeah. You don't know. That's bringing different things to it, too. But... But uh, he, he sounds like he's uh, it's got a much more kind of rounded. Yeah, it's it because of the uh, type of music he played, mm-hmm. mostly you know where he had to uh, rise over a heavy band with a full section of saxophones and trombones, and right. trumpets, you know. Right. Well, you had to rise up uh, above quite a big band too. There, yeah, though, that's you true. Know, you know those. <laughs> <laughs> you had to compete with quite a few brass players behind you and oh, all yes. those, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always, uh, I found, very interesting in, in looking at the orchestra from the outside, from my perspective, is that there's no other job like playing within an orchestra where you're there day in, day out. You have to be sensitive to each other's needs and moods musically. And yet, maybe personally, you're not getting along very well, but yet you rise above that when you get on stage. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think it's probably the same in all the performing uh, endeavors, acting, perhaps. uh. But you're not with them for 60 years. I mean, like, how long were you with these guys? I mean, you know, you sometimes are are sitting next to the same person for 30 or 40 years. Of course. I can't think of another profession where you're actually elbow to elbow for that much time. You're absolutely right about that. The funny thing is I never thought of it during that time, but now you've given me some some food for thought. <laughs> well, well, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's... But you all have, and you're all unique. You all have your own incredible but, characterizations. You know, you know, it's interesting that you can have a different opinion of things. Everybody has their own opinion, perhaps. Uh, but uh, they always seemed, in, in, from my memory of, 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 my, of my years of performing with the Philharmonic, uh, in the Philharmonic, that uh, the performances always had something special. Uh, there was, uh, there, there might have been rough and ready situations in rehearsal times, but uh, in the old days, perhaps more than today. Today, uh, everybody's is ultra nice. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, they always came together in a certain way. Probably it showed its colors perhaps in the strings maybe uh, more than than other sections because uh, you had, you know, you had some great players in the string sections. Maybe every player couldn't play the Beethoven violin concerto in a proper way, but they all played together so well. And, uh, and and under a variety of, of circumstances, I, these old the old recordings uh, show a certain quality of playing that's incredible. Uh, certainly, they the, technically every uh, everything is perhaps more is easier for the to, for the players of today uh, because they write difficult pieces, and 30 years later, that difficult piece is considered standard repertoire. But when it comes to the concert. The actual concert, I think there's a tremendous unity yeah. in my memory of, 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 of a lot of concerts. Yeah. And, and, and certainly a very disparate group, you know, where people have different ideas about things. But on that stage, in concert, there's something that really happens. It's amazing. When you started, it brings something to mind. When you started and you were 19, you were the youngest in the orchestra. Yes. I, I, I mean, was there any kind of um, 
resistance to having the kid around or not really not really i think uh, they they were tolerant of that and everybody everybody was you know they were so different every every country was was Reverend. represented in the new york philharmonic every language it was just amazing but uh, there were there was uh, a lot of fun actually a lot of uh, good fellowship D- did they try to get you involved with those poker games that they had oh sure such, yeah. absolutely uh, one person wanted me to co-sign a loan for him <laughs> <laughs> and i'd been in the orchestra two weeks oh, no. <laughs> true story <laughs> are they the ones that got you smoking cigars uh, well, the, there was an, there were a lot of influences. I would say there was a lot of pipe smoking, which you don't see anymore. You know that kind of thing. A lot of chess games, uh, and and poker, of course. That was uh, part of the uh, the musical psyche in those days. Not not anymore. No. Those kind of uh, no. games don't exist. No. There's one story that the, that the manager of the Philharmonic actually called the New York City police to raid one of the poker games just to get it to, so they'd go home and sleep. Well, uh, I don't know I, if that's I, true. Well, or not. I heard something about it, but <laughs> I heard it slightly different. But they, they, there was uh, what amounted to a go home kind of raid. <laughs> <laughs> but the police actually but, raided the New York Philharmonic's but, uh, poker game. I, I, I well, don't I, think so. But you don't no, think so. no, okay. <laughs> not, not, that was not. So, oh wow! Well, but but, it, but it was. Uh, well, why don't we listen to one more? Okay. Let's get into something that um, uh, everybody really identifies the New York Philharmonic with, and that's playing Mahler. of fun to play Mahler? Wonderful. Yeah. When I've sat in rehearsals with different conductors on the works, conductors will bring their own specific ideas to this. Does kind of direction, instruction stand out in how they might have, um, like say, Bruno Walter's Mahler is so different than Leonard Bernstein's Mahler. It's it's really uh, just a completely different interpretation. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can recall or talk about, you know, what you feel those differences between Walter preparing and rehearsing versus a Bernstein. Or did Bernstein kind of just overwhelm everything else? And Well, you know, uh, Lenny had great talent conducting works, and they sounded right. It became very personal, you know. Uh, Bruno Walter, of course, being 
from the horse's mouth, as a protege of Gustav Mahler, I think uh, differences in differences in in the emotion, and in, it will affect also tempo. Uh, some things uh, were perhaps a little quicker or not so uh, drawn out. But and but uh, the, the one style doesn't make it right or wrong. But I always felt that. Uh, that Lenny's uh, Mahler was incredible because it really told a story. It had passion and, and it had great drive. Right. You see that in his scores where it just did. It, he, he will, he knows where he wanna, wants to be yeah. at one point in the score and it may take him 20 pages of preparation to get there, but that's what he well, lays know, out. It, 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 you, you can see uh, if somebody is drawn to a repertoire, to a piece. I saw it with Bruno Walter. In in a, in performances, but in a recording uh, of the, the sleet from the air. I saw it in the finale, the, the you know, the Rabshid, the last moment. He was actually crying. His, his eyes were full of tears and mm-hmm. in, in conducting that last page of that last moment of the work. The Rabshid, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I never forgot it. It, it, it made, made a tremendous uh, influence on me. How do you keep playing when you're witnessing that? Oh, it's, I'll tell you, 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 you're wrung out by the end, you know. Yeah, I bet, I bet. Because when they're that emotional. See, I'm very lucky. I've, I've experienced some of those things over the years, and I never forgot them. Right. Well. I got a full memory bank. You sure do. You sure do. Should we listen to uh, Bruno Walter's recording sure. of this? It's Now this is before you, and this will be Bellison this time.
swifter tempo. Sure is. And I'm surprised at that. And some of the individual solos didn't have uh, didn't have moving back the end of the phrase. It just kept going. Right. Didn't give him that air to. It, it, it didn't make a little ending uh, of a certain idea. Right. It was very moving along. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. Perhaps some people, you know, of course, he was already, Werner Walter was quite old at that time, but uh, sometimes they want to do faster tempos. Well, and Lenny is known for slowing things down. At times, yes. At time. But uh, But uh, I think of some Tchaikovsky performances mm-hmm. where you're really raising the, raising the roof. Right. You know, except for his last, That's, in 86, that Tchaikovsky. Yeah, I remember Beethoven Ninth with him. Uh. Also, that was it was like you know like this is the last piece or something you know. Well, that's right. You went to Berlin. I went to Berlin for the at the fall of the wall. Yeah, right. We went. I went with seven colleagues. We were the biggest contingents. Right. We were eight people, and uh, there were the orchestra was from made up of players from a lot of different orchestras, and it was very moving. I must say, incredibly moving. That's the one fact I didn't get down here on. on your list of numbers is how many Mahler symphonies you played with how many different well, conductors. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I, with many, many uh, in Mahler. And we, it, we, just with Lenny, with two, the two cycles in the 60s and in the 80s, mm-hmm. and individual performances with other conductors. Right, you did. I mean, then from Bruno Walter, Metropolis, Boulez. Well, well, even even uh, Stokowski did a Mahler. Oh, that's, the, yeah. He did the so eighth. He you were there the for eighth. the for the world for the U.S. Prim, uh, for the Philharmonic's first performance yeah. of the eighth. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Yeah, you were there for that. But I'm just curious. I want to hear this. Um, let's listen to Mazur with the Midsummer's Night's Dream of Mendelssohn from 1994. This is a broadcast. That's hard. That's hard. That measure is hard, difficult. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> because you kind of come in, come in out of nowhere, you know, and yet it has to extend everything. And it doesn't sound hard there, but oh. that's really. <laughs> 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 but that's that's the way it's supposed to sound. Right. <laughs> you never sweat. Just those seven notes. It's hard. Wow. All right. It was beautiful. Thank you. Right. Okay. So let's listen this to um, Toscanini. 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 
I've heard it. So you have a furrowed brow. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's it. I think it got a better tempo as it went along. It started out very slow. So it, it was sort of a little bit uh, stodgy. But you know, they couldn't take very many many takes, yeah. really. Then oh, sure. either, right? Yeah. So this is uh, pretty sure this is an electrical recording. Twenty six, yeah. Oh, nineteen twenty six. But it's interesting to hear how even though the 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 proficiency of playing has improved. I mean, it's like what you were saying before of like what was hard. Yeah, it's like with the Corigliano, right? Yeah. Clarinet concerto, yeah. which was so difficult when right. you first mastered right. it, right. and then it got so like, well, but then everybody it focused on it and became way. right, right, absolutely, that to be expected. Right, it just pushes the entire kind of well, instrument I, and the playing I, of it even well, further. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm very proud of the recordings I made with the Philharmonic. Oh yeah, well. and and, and uh, yeah. but I was very lucky to play with such repertoire yeah. to get a chance yeah. to play pieces like that and some, you know. And to be in the, in the history of, of the Philharmonic, which is uh, incredible. Uh, oh, but Stanley, I think they were actually also very lucky to have uh, someone of your brilliance and talent come along right uh, when they did. In any event, uh, I'm I'm very happy. And about I and everything. I'm really glad that you weren't born a hundred years earlier, or we wouldn't have had these recordings and uh, and broadcasts of your performances. So you, you are very kind. Thank you, Barbara. It's very nice. So. As always, uh, it's it's a real joy to have you here and to see you, and uh, we will have another conversation again soon. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you, dear. Okay, okay. Barbara. The recording engineer for this podcast is Larry Rock, the Philharmonic's audio director, assisted by Ian Good. Editing was done by Charles Van Tassel, who also composed the podcast theme. Mm-hmm.